0: I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. Isaac Avilucea is a native New Mexican who currently covers criminal justice for the Trentonian newspaper in New Jersey. The Daily Beast has described him as a journalist with astonishing courage and a taste for irony indulged by ink-stained wretches the world over. A UNM graduate, Avi Lucea got a start in journalism working at the Daily Lobo, where he cut his teeth against the jagged edges of ex-UNM football coach Mike Loxley's ignominious reign. From there, Avi Lucea has stirred waves at nearly every destination he's reported, from New Mexico to Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and now New Jersey. He is truly a reporter's reporter, and maybe the ballsiest one I've ever come to know. Though his young career includes some preempted intervals and some fits and starts, Avi Lucea has proven to be a man of uncompromised standards and unfailing chutzpah, having now twice asserted himself into the center of First Amendment fights over the right of a journalist to publish legally obtained records. Under the threat of imprisonment, he waged his most recent battle against the state of New Jersey. While in the throes of recurring stage three testicular cancer, his second bout with the disease doctors initially told him would be a certain death sentence. Avi Lucey and I spoke on Friday this past week, which just happened to mark the one year anniversary since he was informed that the cancer was in remission. In a no holds barred and deeply personal discussion, Avi Lucea and I talk about life, death, and truth, and a little bit of Lobo shenanigans for good measure. Our conversation goes for a little over two hours, and I initially debated whether or not to break it into two different segments, but I'm going to trust and implore my audience to stick with us. It is certainly worth your time, and the good news for you is that I'm not the one who does most of the talking. And so, without further ado, I give you Isaac Avi Lucea. All right, Isaac, welcome to the NM Fishbowl podcast. Thanks
1: for having me, Dan. I appreciate uh, you having me on today.
0: So, I was uh, in, in prepping for our conversation. I was, I was, it just dawned on me how difficult if I was to write a story about you, how difficult it would be to come up with the lead. Because usually, I feel like when you have some sort of narrative about a person, there's a couple of anecdotes or a couple of entry points that are so obvious. Um, to begin your to begin a story, but with you there's just there's too many. there's too many, there's too many possibilities of how to begin. So I'm gonna cheat a little bit and I'm going to uh, use something that somebody else wrote. Um, in late 2016, a, uh, a well-known journalist named Lloyd Grove, who is the former gossip columnist at The Washington Post and the New York Daily News, did a piece uh, for The Daily Beast and the headline was, how New Jersey's attorney general is trying to muzzle a reporter and the then attorney general for New Jersey was a man named Chris Perino and the reporter who he was purportedly trying to muzzle was you. And this dealt with a prior restraint case that you had been uh, involved in uh, that I want to touch on later on. Um, But at the end of the story, the, the, uh, the kicker Grove quoted an email that you had a, evidently sent him shortly before his piece went to press and here is what you wrote and I'm and I'm quoting you now I found out yesterday my cancer is back I'm in the hospital now have the history I was coughing up blood felt weak yesterday they said spread to my lungs and lymph nodes near my stomach waiting to be biopsied I gotta make decisions once I know prognosis if it's beyond treatable I'll probably go back to New Mexico Um, which is quite a kicker. So I I wanted just to mention this at the start of our conversation, just to plant this flag and then hope we can sort of wind our way back to this towards the end. Um, but before we do that, let's let's start in New Mexico. Let's go back to New Mexico. And I want you to tell me a little bit about you getting into journalism and starting at the uh, at the Daily Lobo when you were a student at UNM.
1: So going into college, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I was considering different things, you know every parent wants their child to be a doctor or a lawyer Um, you know, my dad always used to tell me, he's a retired firefighter, retired Albuquerque firefighter his name is Andrew, and he always used to tell me work harder or excuse me, work smarter, not harder right, because he'd work 48 straights and uh, he'd work himself to the bone Sometimes they'd stay up all night on calls so he always stressed that to me work smarter not harder so I was trying to figure out something to do with my life as every other college kid going into their freshman year and uh, throughout high school I had uh, plenty of teachers tell me over the years that they thought I had a knack for writing um, I had a lot of English teachers over the years that said uh, I think that that's something maybe you should consider or pursue so Heading into my freshman year, I was looking for scholarship money and uh, uh, I entered this essay contest and among the prompts were, uh, what is the best city to live in and why? And, you know, what's that old saying, you write what you know. (laughs) I didn't know anything else outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm 17, going to be 18 years old. lived there my whole life, growing up there, going to high school there, made friends there. That's all I knew, so I did the best to write what I knew, and I wrote a 500-word essay about Albuquerque, and um, the only real part about it I remember is I think I described Albuquerque at one point as a sort of cosmopolitan city. and. Do I really? I don't even know if I knew exactly what I was talking about at that, at that age, but it sounded good and I remember I would always, uh, I had a knack for using a lot of big words that I didn't necessarily always know what they meant, but that's how you become a, a better writer. You explore, you take chances, you figure it out as you go, and your teachers give you guidance along the way. But. Apparently somebody thought that was a a, a crafty little saying about Albuquerque and thought I made some sort of sense in the uh, argument that I crafted about why Albuquerque was one of the best cities to live in, and they published it in a book. It was a publishing company out of I believe it was Seattle. I might be mistaken, but the the name of it was Elder and Lemoore. and the uh, it was a little book of the best essay submissions from across the nation. They published 2% of the essay submissions. And mine was one of them. Now, I didn't win the scholarship money, but I did get published in that book. And the name of the book was called Authors of Tomorrow. And from that point forward, I kind of found my niche. And I went on to college and I had a, a freshman English 101 teacher and uh, she was a, a, a very good teacher of mine she was the one who actually propelled me to apply at the Daily Lobo the student newspaper at the University of New Mexico and she had a friend there who became one of my good dear friends his name is Steven Fernandez she was a sports editor at the time at the Daily Lobo she hooked me up with him and he took me on staff as a uh, kind of a freelance, freelance staff reporter and gave me my first assignment. I remember it was about a, uh, a softball pitcher over there at the University of New Mexico. Um, wrote a little feature about her. And he thought it was good. <laughs> Again, I tricked somebody else into thinking that I had some sort of writing talent. And, you know, he gave me a couple of other assignments. You know I, I did well enough on those which now if you go back and read what you wrote you're like wow, wow I don't even know why I wrote that that's terrible they bled red ink all over it I, I'm, I'm embarrassed for what I turned in but you, you learn as you go and you grow and they eventually made me a, a staff reporter and I was thrilled right like making 15 bucks a story you know you're having a time of your life you find something that you like you're writing about sports that fondness grows and grows and grows. And uh, I kept convincing Steven that I was good enough. And uh, he was moving on up. Um, they were making him the managing editor. So he needs somebody to fill his spot. So he decided to promote me at, toward the end of my freshman year, heading into the summer, to become sports editor. And it's a uh, position I held for two and a half, two, two, two and a half, three years.
0: So I wanna I um, wanna ask you about about so this was around what, two thousand nine, two thousand ten was when you were in college and working right. as a sports director. So the football coach at New Mexico was the uh, was the infamous now, Mike Loxley. Um, right. can you tell me a little bit about covering him, um, both writing about him and then in your in your role as an editor and some of the some of the instances that came up because his uh... his tenure was chock full of drama
1: it was and it started right from the get-go uh... you know the honeymoon was very very short he, he came in uh... people were excited about mike loxley you know, a, a very top-notch recruiter so the story sort of the narrative went um, uh, african-american coach uh, very very uh well-spoken individual um told a good story right came in said he was going to light up the scoreboard that's what everybody wanted to hear at the university of mexico at the time because they were they had tired of uh, rocky long's ground and pound uh, philosophy and you know grinding out games running the ball they wanted to spread it and, and, and score a bunch of points. So he comes in at his press conference. I'll forget that. Never forget that one, the introductory press conference. And he tells, oh, we're going to light up the scoreboard. And well, <laughs> the only one that lit up the scoreboard was, is a, his, uh, you know, the UNM's opponents. So, uh, he had, he had a tough go. He was going to add a third, go.
0: you're, you're they're going to add a third digit, right?
1: Yeah. they a third digit to, to the uh, opponents outside <laughs> of the scoreboard. So he ended up getting in a little bit of hot water right away. It was a, a sexual harassment, discrimination lawsuit that was brought by, uh, uh, I believe it was an aide. Uh, She was an older lady who had essentially said that he was trying to replace her by bringing, uh, I think the word was show horses into the uh, athletic uh, football office to entice recruits. That was how the narrative went. So, that kind of uh, ended the honeymoon, so to speak, and then from there he didn't do himself any favors because he got into a uh, physical altercation a few months later with one of his assistant coaches, uh, an individual named J.B. Gerald, and uh, that story exploded when all the news outlets obtained the police report that had showed J.B. And, and Loxley had gotten into some sort of physical spat at the at the football offices, and J.B. ended up. Uh, quitting from his uh, assistant coach position and he went on later to become a teacher. I think he's, last time I checked up with him was a few years ago. He was in teaching at some sort of Jesuit academy in, uh, near the D.C. area. Did you, So you were but able he, to stay in touch with him? I did. I stayed in touch with him a little bit. I haven't had contact with him maybe in a couple of years, but uh, last I had heard, I checked on LinkedIn. He was He was teaching, but he wasn't wasn't back in coaching the last time I checked up with him at least college football coaching he may have been you know coaching high school on some level but uh, it, it was kind of a, an interesting narrative for, for JB because he had had a, he was a young guy, had a PhD was working towards his PhD, went to Penn State, came to New Mexico and you know landed a, a good little gig as an assistant coach and he, he pretty much gave that up to tell his story. Uh, and you know he was, he was, in some regards, blackballed from, from the college football coaching. Yeah, place. no matter He's Diamond we, on Loxley,
0: right? We don't. We've seen this now in instance after instance all around the country that the one sort of hard and fast rule about, especially college football, but maybe kind of major college athletics, is you just don't talk, even if you have something, even if you have something uh, valid to say in criticism of, of, a, of a certain situation you find yourself in, the, um, the omerta of college football is, is thick. Um, so tell me about the incident at the bar involving Loxley and a reporter um, for the Daily Lobo who was under your, who was, I guess if you were the, either the sports editor or the managing editor at the time.
1: Uh, I I was still a sports editor at that time. Uh, The reporter, his uh, name was uh, Ryan Tamari, and uh, essentially the short of it was he was at a uh, local uh, Albuquerque uh, brew pub bar that uh, Loxley had frequented. Loxley and his staff had frequented, and uh, he was there drinking with a couple of buddies, uh, Loxley and, and, and the coaching staff had came in, and Ryan had previously written uh, kind of a satirical column because UNM was very, very bad at that point. Uh, they were they were bad throughout Loxley's tenor. I think he ended up being 2-23 and throughout his, uh, you know, abbreviated tenor there at the University of Mexico. But the short of it was Ryan wrote a, a, a column where he had played the, uh, you know college football video game, and he was UNM Lobos, and he was playing Oregon in the season opener, and uh, he was doing horribly. He was getting blown out uh, in the first half, and he decided to simulate it, simulate the rest of the game. And if I remember correctly, I think the final score was 72 to three, 72, Oregon 72, UNM three. So he wrote a column based off this, kind of prognosticating what could or would happen uh, in UNM's actual opener with Oregon, and <laughs> the the video game ended up being almost spot on. More, it I was more the, generous.
0: It was more generous to the level. It was.
1: You're right. It was more generous. It actually gave UNM three points, and they didn't score squat. They got blown out, seventy-two to nothing, uh, at Oregon. So. It, Loxley was upset with this satirical column for some reason and confronted Ryan about it. And, you know, there's different versions of events, but essentially the version that Ryan told us was that he felt uncomfortable, even kind of intimidated or or threatened by whatever the conversation that he had with Loxley at the bar and Loxley's version was, uh, I don't really know what he's talking about it. I didn't do anything assaultive or, uh, anything to threaten or intimidate him. And I thought we patched it up. I even, you know, bought them around of drinks and we left it at that, but it turned it mushroomed in this huge controversy, uh, at UNM that, uh, basically centered on Loxley's ability to carry and comport himself as a division one head coach. And it became, uh, a medic for, for his failures and his inability to, to control uh, his demeanor and uh, some of the scrutiny and uh, criticism that he faced at the University of Mexico. And I think that's really what the driving force was on that story. It wasn't so much that he said, she said of whatever the interaction was between Ryan and Loxley. It was just this bigger picture thing that Loxley had this knack for getting himself into situations that he should never have been in.
0: The other then the the other tributary that came out of this of course was how UNM responded um, which I think was a salient indication for what would happen over the next decade in terms of its athletics department and how it would respond to media scrutiny and so there was a tape of this incident or this encounter at the bar that I believe had been recorded either by somebody who was there or by the by somebody who worked at the bar you'll have to fill me in on the details but but tell me about the tape and tell me about you know the basically the efforts from the efforts from the Daily Lobo and local Albuquerque media to obtain this tape and how UNM then responded.
1: So it, it's indicative of a Paul Krebs tenor, where the cover up is always worse than the crime. And really that's what has uh, Paul Krebs in, in some hot water right now, so potentially some, you know, the legal criminal hot water, you know, depending on how the attorney general's investigation goes. But that's really what it was. It was a cover up was worse than the so called crime in this particular case and we had went through tried to jump through various hoops to obtain that tape to get a definitive kind of account for what may have happened because, you know, you want to do your due diligence even though if you have a reporter that's involved in the uh, so-called altercation, you want to find some sort of veritable proof to back up or even refute his, uh, Ryan's account. So we weren't just necessarily taking him on his word. We wanted to find some sort of definitive proof, so we went looking for the tape at the bar that the interaction had. And the owner essentially refused to turn it over. UNM got involved. Uh, UNM was, you know, denying access to everybody, including us for the tape. Um, At some juncture, they allowed, I guess that UNM obtained the tape and they allowed a reporter from the Albuquerque Journal to view it alongside of Loxley with Loxley kind of narrating what happened on the tape giving his side of it, but uh, it was just, the way it was handled was wholly inappropriate and, uh, you know, it lacked a full transparency and no one really could definitively <laughs> get the full story of what exactly happened um, in that instance. And, you know, it uh, that, that surveillance footage at, at Uptown Sports Bar ended up just being elusive.
0: So what did this experience do for you? This is a for, you know, this is your college journalism experience. Is how to be formative in your career, and you were, I guess, personally in some interesting way, the beneficiary of some of this zaniness that was going on at UNM. You very easily could have gone during the uh, you know been a been a uh, student reporter during the Rocky Long era, where there wouldn't have been something like this, perhaps. So what did this what did this do for you in terms of opening your eyes or kind of channeling your focus as a reporter? It uh,
1: it it was a a hot cauldron over there at UNM, and um, you had to be careful about everything you did as a reporter. You had to make sure all your eyes were dotted and your T's were crossed, and really that's what it taught me the importance of of being very thorough and being on top of things and ensuring you're as accurate and as fair as you can because (laughs) it's like anything with reporting. If you're not accurate and fair, you're gonna be criticized. And then if you give in a very controversial hot button type of situation, if you give a Paul Krebs or a Mike Loxley or a UNM a little peg stand on stand on in terms of a small inaccuracy they're going to use that to bootstrap their agenda and discredit everything that you write and I was already in a situation where because of some of the things factual based things that I had already written some of the columns articles and other things covering that uh, you know bluster, you know what, for lack of a better term, over at UNM, that they were going to do anything in their power to discredit me. And if I remember correctly, there was a, I had gotten contacted, while well, that whole controversy was exploding uh, by a KOB, reporter at KOB with Oprah some, uh, or at some, sorry, Oprah's in New Jersey, IPRA's, uh, <laughs> the uh, public records law over there, and Mexico, but he had obtained some uh, emails that Paul Krebs and another athletic official had been referencing me, and it said something to the effect of that, you know, we have to be careful with Isaac because he's always looking to, you know, take a negative angle and and make everything subjective, right? They were trying to discredit me as some sort of subjective, biased, uh, slant artist. Right, which is kind of interesting coming from a guy named Paul Krebs, because I think his career is indicative of him trying to shape and slant every story that has involved negatively or positively UNM. So it was kind of interesting that they were trying to paint me as as, as the slant artist. And well, I and this and
0: as as you well know, this is something that I've now encountered because of the direction of my of my work over the last year and a half. And I, I, I keep having this conversation, but I think it bears mentioning over and over again. I don't think people understand subjectivity in journalism and and how it is impossible not to be subjective on anything you cover. So, you know, you cover criminal justice right now. You If you were to report on a case that was just a sort of cut and dry murder case, Um, and, you know, just the facts of what happened and and, and so on and so forth. The mere act of covering that is rooted in so many different subjective axioms that we all take for granted. The importance of following the law, the importance of human life. I mean, these are all no-brainers and they're non-controversial, so we sort of all just skip over them the reader skips over them no one would accuse you of writing a story about a murder in your in in the uh in the local papers town as being biased or the story being subjective but of course it is you know we all make decisions about what merits coverage how to cover things from the perspective that we cover things you know and and often we we have some sort of consensus idea about what's important for civil society what's important for um, for our communities and, 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 and sort of the tone and the perspective we should take. What's interesting about sports is that, you know, in, in many ways, the mere coverage of it by a journalistic outfit is so one-sidedly pro sports um, that, you know, anything else almost just brings you back to some sort of subjective reality, some kind of even-handedness. The fact that newspapers cover, let's say, college sports the on-field performances in this sort of anointing and affirmative way—that um, is not objective journalism. That is that is a incredibly biased uh, first move on this in this whole game here. That this stuff that this first of all that this stuff deserves attention. That it deserves a kind of affirmation from journalism from local journalism. Um, that is incredibly biased, and so. You know the now of, of course this has just become the expectation and the norm. The expectation is newspapers and local TV will just cover the local hometown college team in a kind of supportive way, um, and so anything that strikes at that just you know rubs people wrongly or feels like it's it's some sort of violation of of the of the uh, unstated agreement between the readership and and, and a media outlet, but. Um, you know, there's, this is all subjective. At the end of the day, you're just trying to get down to what is right. What is right ethically? What is right in terms of public service? Um, and it gets, it gets muddled when you cover something that's pretty trifling and insignificant and not important to the community in a sort of, in a real substantive way, maybe in an emotional way, um, in, in the coverage of sports.
1: It's really interesting. I'll tell you this. I, i could not and i did not survive as a sports journalist (laughs) right and i think it's just how i'm rooted and created because when you're a certain type of sports journalist right even just i even get offended by using that word sports journalist because it subcategorizes every journalist right there should just be journalists cover beats it shouldn't be i'm a sports journalist i'm a news reporter on this some that but it is because of exactly what you're talking about and and really as a sports journalist you're an act you're an access journalist you your coverage depends on your access your scoops depend on your access and who gives that and grants that access it's the universities it's the coaches um in some respects it's you know, on the professional level it's it's the players. You're it's all so much relationship based. Um, and oh I trust this reporter, if I don't trust that reporter, I'll talk to this news outlet, I won't talk to that news outlet. And it's all part and parcel of how you cover the university, the player, the coach, and everybody grants access based on which is most favorable, right? And I think I remember writing a a column for the Day Lobo, guest column when I was a a reporter at the Santa Fe, New Mexican, because really the biggest example of this type of access sports journalism that blew up in sports journalists' face was the whole fiasco at Penn State with the sex scandal with Jerry Sandusky. And you know, like... Sports is thought of as just sort of toy department. I, I wrote a column basically talking about that. That's not even <laughs> that's not even explicit enough for how certain newspapers treat their sports department. It's not a toy. De- it's not a toy department. It's a sex toy department because you're basically infanticizing, idolizing, and <laughs> on a certain level, almost sexualizing these uh, athletes, these players. Uh, these universities, and it's appalling because there were how many sports journalists that were covering Penn State over the decades that maybe had an inkling or knew some information about Jerry Sandusky, but it wasn't a sports reporter who broke that story. It was a news reporter who was detached from the university who didn't have to rely on their access to those Penn State officials, coaches, players, assistant coaches who broke that story and 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 turned it into the huge scandal that it was, but it was right under every prominent and there were a lot of prominent sports journalists covering Penn State. Right. It was right under their noses. Yeah, there and was they, a uh, they there... either ignored it or they couldn't report it because they were they were shackled because if they reported it, they're dead. They're like Mr. Acosta with Donald Trump. <laughs> Your press credentials are yanked. You are done. You were blackmarked. We're done with you.
0: Yeah, there is a, um, there is a, there's a fairly prominent and, and well-revered sports writer named Joe Pisnanski, who I'm sure you know him, who was in the process yeah. of writing this just slavishly obsequious book about Paterno during the whole... Sandusky thing and just couldn't bring himself to ask any of the important questions as it related to Sandusky because again I mean if you are reared in this world of sports writing um, and I agree with you I I also chafe at the concept of sports journalism so we'll we'll use the term sports writing but if you're you're reared in this you, you just learn you know from a very from a very early start um, a whole bunch of bad habits in terms of how to get the real story or an important story out. What, what is worth that access exchange? I mean, so many journalists constantly are, are not writing, so many sports journalists are constantly not writing difficult stories for the hope that this relationship that they've cultivated, this one-sided relationship with the subject matter that they've cultivated is going to pay off in some way that it never will. It never will pay off and so they you know you you avoid writing interesting important public service journalism uh so that you may be able to get a tip on some fucking recruit that the coach is is, is um is recruiting in, in, a, in a given in a given point of time it's it's terrible and and you know i mean it, it this is a paradox sports journalism is a sort of is a difficult paradox where there's a swath of reporting in America that occupies the same real estate um, as other journalism that abides by some of its stylistic and technical standards, but at its heart is really not performing a journalistic function. It is entertainment reporting masquerading as journalism. And so, you know, this often is fine when you're covering professional sports. While there are certainly civic issues dealing with anything from athlete health to concussions to the way in which professional stadiums are financed, um, this definitely crosses into news a lot of times. But when you're just covering professional sports, you can probably get away with it a little bit more and not feel like you're totally selling yourself journalistically down the river. I don't know how you do that in college sports. I think that's impossible. I think college sports beat reporters more often than not are just behaving again by no dint of necessarily their own fault but are just behaving anti-journalistically in almost everything that they're covering um and the few times where there's controversy or where there's an issue of you know of of communal interest of civic interest that they finally um they finally address i feel like those moments are few and far between a whole bunch of useless bullshit um, that doesn't help anybody in terms of, in terms of public service or in terms of journalism.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, and you know what it is is, uh, in some respects, I I don't necessarily think it's the sports journalist's fault. It's just a byproduct of feeding the beast, feeding the daily drop, so to speak, right? Because you know you have editors, you have people you have to answer to. Like, oh, what do you? It's a, it's a what have you done for me lately? Uh, type deal, and that's that's journalism, all, across the board. But I feel like it's more so in sports journalism, right? Because it's like, you know, what do what do you have for me today about this program? And what you know, it's gamers, it's features. But you've got to just fill the inch count, right? And there's not, you know, with other. Types of journalism, investigative journalism. It's not about filming the inch count. It's about writing something that has an impact and that has, has has a reach. And too often, you know, when especially when it gets into the the meat of the season, whether it's basketball, football, whatever the sport may be, it, you're just bogged down with daily minutiae coverage of games, features, little things that happen within whole entertainment of the game to focus on hard-hitting um, impactful journalism so I, I think it's yeah a it, it, it occurs
0: to me that I can't ama- I can't think of another domain of interest where there's regular press conferences um, regularly scheduled press conferences that actually produce less news than your common weekly, you know, or midweek, um, college football or college basketball press conference. I mean, there's literally nothing to share in these events. Um, but we've again to go back to that social contract that has somehow been been formed in this, in this, in the production of sports writing. You know, yet journalists will show up. Um, they'll write the stories. They'll report the news. I mean, there's like almost invariably, there's nothing to say. In the middle of the week about you know leading up to leading up to the next game and so it's this just it's just this dance that's done um and uh and we, and we all and we all or, or those who are practitioners or involved in the in the profession just kind of go along with it i remember uh, about a year out of college for me i was working at a magazine right out of college in milwaukee um, and I applied and was offered the job to cover Fresno State. And it was, it was unclear whether or not I was going to be Fresno State football or Fresno State men's basketball for the Fresno B. And I flew out to Fresno and I met with the sports editor. And this was kind of a launching pad uh, of a place. Um, people who had had one of these jobs in the past had kind of used it to get either to ESPN or Yahoo or... The Washington Post, it was it was kind of it was called had a reputation for being a springboard professionally for sports writers, the Fresno Um But I remember the um, the sports editor at the time, you know, talking about well, you know, we we certainly like doing enterprise work. Uh, they they had made almost a, a cottage industry out of investigating Jerry Tarkanian when he was the uh, basketball coach at Fresno State. Um, but he's like, you know, it's also important that we and that was the first time I had heard the phrase feed the beast. Uh, to to your point about just the the daily grind of minutia that has has become uh, college sports writing. Um, so you mentioned uh, 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 something you had written for the Santa Fe New Mexican. You went after you graduated from New Mexico. You went to work at the New Mexican for for a, a spell of time, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a little detour before I, I give tribute to it because it's it's important to me. But I went in, I, right out of college. I went and worked in. The- in, in Socorro, New Mexico, at the El Defensor Chieftain. It was a bi weekly newspaper there in the southern part of the state. And I worked there for six or seven months covering prep sports. Um, I, I was basically the de facto sports editor. I was in charge. I was the only sports reporter, sports editor. And I had a very good designer who turned into a good friend I made down there. And, and she would help uh, package up the whole sports page and design it all. But I had a Write the stories, snap the photos, do the cut lines. Basically, prepackaged the whole sports section um, before it went to press. You know, twice a week. So uh, it was it was an interesting experience, kind of uh, being the one man show, so to speak, over there. And then I got offered a, an internship um, at the Santa Fe New Mexican, and you know, I was a staff reporter at the, the Defensor Chieftain. So you would think, Oh, an internship you're gonna take an internship. yeah, but I was like, Yeah, I mean it was <laughs> it was an opportunity at a daily. It was my first opportunity at a daily out of college and even though it was an internship I jumped at the chance, so I ended up taking that and they you know, like again, keep coming back to this. I tricked enough people over there and thinking I was good enough for them to offer me a, a staff report position. Um, but it, it ended ugly over there a little bit. <laughs> and uh I, I admit some of it was uh my own doing, but I just think that it goes back to this theme that I'm talking about. Is I couldn't survive as a sports journalist, and really what precipitated my end over there. I don't, um, I don't have any qualms about it, right? I mean, if it, <laughs> how it went down, and what I feel about the whole situation at the Mexican, I would have the same reaction.
0: Right. So so so, just, so went, right in in the Lloyd Grove's piece, he quotes your former sports editor there, and, and here's the quote from him talking about your uh, your exit, or your or or your uh, your struggle there. Um, he said of you, when he latches on to something, he won't let it go. It's a great quality in a way, but you also have to realize that if you're covering basketball, not everything is Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, I mean. Uh, I love James but James has his own ideas about journalism that don't really align with always align with my ideas about journalism and uh, basically what happened at the Santa Fe, New Mexican was a series of little things that culminated into a big thing and I don't think it needed need to lead to my dismissal but I don't call the shots over there. You know I'm just the worker bee and you know worker bees there's a diamond dozen so what essentially happened. What, it was a series of things that, pers- and I've never really talked about it openly, but it's not a big secret. Like everybody, everybody in New Mexico in the sports circle knows it. Um, so you know, when when it, it, it's kind of a long-winded story, but the short of it is that I had some sort of interaction a few months before, a few like quite a quite a few months before uh, all this stuff blew up with me and James surrounding. Uh, a story I'd written about a uh, high school coach who was being offered a a gig at uh, Pawaukee Valley as a volleyball coach, but just kind of set the foundation. What had happened was ex- exactly what I'm talking about with this accent. Okay, Frank Mercaglianos the SID at UNM, still there. Uh, I've never gotten along with that guy. He was a complete smuck uh, when I was at uh, the University of New Mexico. Daily Lobo. Um, always gave me a hard time about everything I wrote, Uh, you know, would do these little underhanded things to attempt to limit my access or, you know, stymie me in whatever whatever way that he could. And that (laughs) continued when I moved on to the Santa Fe, New Mexican. And there's this very little known, little utilized rule that they have, universities have about issuing credentials to Reporters for the uh, NCAA basketball tournament. So, what what was it, 2011? I don't remember exactly, 2011 was when the Lobos were, were really good. I was at the New Mexican, and uh, Will Weber, my colleague there, would, had been covering the Lobos very vigorously, but he couldn't make the trip to go cover them at the tournament, wherever region they were in, because he, you know, as a father, he had other responsibilities back home that he couldn't do. So, essentially, what the decision was that they were going to have me go cover it and they were going to you know sign me up for the press credential so frank pulled this little politics and invoked this little known rule that you have to be at if you're whatever paper's covering it you the reporter that goes has to have at least covered the university of new mexico for half the season half the game something like that i didn't really i wasn't even really aware of it so i i, I knew what they were doing right they didn't like the reporter that the New Mexican had assigned to cover the University of New Mexico because of some of the controversial, uh, critical stories that I had written when I was a sports editor managing editor at the Daily Lobo. So he pulled the only card that he could, his only little Trump card that he could pull to prevent me from going and covering UNM at the tournament. So being a young, dumb, highly charged, emotional reporter I thought what he did was bullshit for lack of a better term and I let him know about it and I let him know about it in very explicit terms and I remember saying something to the effect of essentially like you know what you did Frank and that's fucking bullshit and I remember cursing in a text message right so I gave him a little nugget and he turned it into a mine. so he goes and gives that to James James comes back and tells me oh you can't be speaking to you know, UNM officials like this, it's unprofessional, blah, 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 blah. So I got that talking to, and, uh, you know, I think that kind of started to deteriorate my and James' relationship, because I felt like he should have been backing me rather than the UNM official who played his little trump card. So kind of fast forward a little bit, uh, you know, I, I had an incident at the New Mexican that I got an in-house suspension for for, for seven days, uh, where I w- all I was allowed to do was do desk duty because I was at a high school football game with Will Weber, and I it was a terrible game between you know two of the worst teams in the north. I remember exactly who it was, but they were they were bad. Right, like I wanted to gouge my eyes out, and I sometimes I just need to bite my tongue. I didn't, and I remember referring on Twitter to the game as, oh, this was a, an abortion of a game, right? It was an unfortunate phrase that I used. I regretted it, kind of, even though I thought it was true, uh, but really what you got to consider and that I didn't consider at the time that I tweeted it was that there's a high concentration of Catholics in northern New Mexico who take offense to any use of the word abortion so even though I was saying that this game is horrendously bad there are just certain words buzzwords that people get offended by so somebody saw my tweet sent it to James I got talked to I was recalcitrant so I got you know in our suspension for some days And so I'm kind of on a short leash, on thin ice or whatever, and I write this really, what I thought was a great story. It revolved around this coach. He used to coach in Texaco. His name was uh, Little John. Uh, Really good coach at Texaco. Won a bunch of uh, prep state championships. Went on to get another job in Borgia, Texas. Left New Mexico, went to Borgia, Texas. Somehow, he's doing well over there, but he's available to come coach Pahuacca Valley girls volleyball in northern New Mexico. And this was after Pahuacca Valley. It just like Pahuacca Valley was like the eminent 3A volleyball team in northern New Mexico across the state. Like, They were really good. They just won a state championship, and their coach had left for whatever reason. I don't remember remember the ABCs of it, but... There was an opening at Pewaukee Valley, Little John Applied. Okay, and um, I read a little bit about Little John, and I just thought it was interesting that he, that he was applying. I don't remember how I figured it out, but he was applying. And I started digging into Little John. Something kind of just gave me that little unease, or that little bug, and I didn't let it go, right? I didn't let it go. I guess I went all Woodward and Bernstein, and I apologize, <laughs> I went all Woodward and Bernstein. So I started digging and I made a public records request because I just I didn't know why a good coach left Texaco under cloudy terms and then was doing well at Borser and well he's just available so I, admit a, I made a public records request for everything and <laughs> shockingly they gave me like everything <laughs> so I'm getting all these reports personnel all this stuff you know I'm, I'm, I'm happy beaming from ear to ear I'm reading through this shit. Mm-hmm. and it ends up being that Little John had been accused at Borgia, Texas High School of having inappropriate interactions with the girls. He was touching them. He was, you know, I don't. They felt like it was somewhat sexual. He claimed that he was trying to show them how to do exercises. And yada yada yada. But whatever the case may be, he was making the girls uncomfortable there. And then he was also <laughs> propositioning his assistant coach for sex. And she claimed that he was sending her pictures of his penis. He was sending her very explicit text messages. He was doing everything in his power. This is before the Me Too movement to try to take advantage of a subordinate. He got a $25,000 buyout to go bye-bye at Borgia. Okay, So that's why he was available to go coach at Puake Valley. Puake Valley had an agreement. They were hiring him. Okay, I wrote this story. I blew up their hire. And Matt Martinez, who was the athletic director at uh, Powake Valley, I couldn't get a straight answer from him if they had vetted this guy. I couldn't get a straight answer from the superintendent. couldn't get a straight answer from anyone. Matt Martinez and Barone at the time were, you know, Barone's been up in the north for years. They're black like buddy buddies, whatever. They're cool. So Matt Martinez was pissed that I blew up his hire. And he never forgave me for it, and I'm sure he kind of gave Barone a hard time. Just,
0: right? just so let me time. just let me just interject because I didn't mention his name in front, in front. So so James Barone, just to put the two names together, was the sports editor at the was your sports editor at the New Mexican. Yes. Okay. So I just wanted to flag that because I I, I I didn't mention his name and you would and you refer to him as James before. Um, sorry. Yeah. Continue. So so it
1: gives James a hard time about the whole tumultuous uh, backlash that followed me blowing up Little John as their hiring coach with this huge, you know, shell shocking story about, you know, these sexual harassment, sexual misconduct allegations. So they end up scuttling it. They couldn't hire him. He's done. Right. And like, (laughs) I remember interviewing Little John and grilling him and just, (sighs) I don't say this very often, but I destroyed him in that interview. Like it was embarrassing and they had no choice but to just scrap that put that on the garbage heap and and move on but you know matt martinez the ad at the time gave barone a a very hard time from what i understood about that story so you know brown kind of has this on his mind he's upset he's always fielding calls about you know people upset about some of my reporting whether it's a big investigative piece or just you know run-of-the-mill feature whatever he's he did get Significant amount of calls about my reporting because I'm just an aggressive reporter who always looks for an angle that I think is interesting and that is going to speak to people. And sometimes the people speaking are the ones that hate it. <laughs> so he's always getting calls about about me, and this gets in his head, right? So one day I'm on desk duty. I was off suspension by that point. I was I was gliding by. I was doing good. I felt like I had recovered, rehabilitated myself. Good. I'm writing a little. Roundup. We did roundups to the New Mexican, just of all the high school games that day. And it, I remember what it was it was uh, might have been Santa Fe High. That called in, gave their score, gave me a little quotes, whatever. So I wrote some lead. I I wish I remember what it was. It was a little it was a little edgy, maybe a little catchy. I was trying to jazz up the run of the mill roundup, right? So whatever it was, it it upset somebody at Santa Fe High. They called James. James was upset he had to hear it, and basically, kind of came down on me. And I remember he had he had threatened my job before, and he did it again this time. And I, I lost my shit. Okay, I lost my shit, and I was like, you, you you know, you can't be continually threatening my job whenever you get a call about somebody who doesn't like my report that doesn't jibe well, that doesn't go any good for our relationship. I can't trust that you have my back when somebody complains about something that I think is part and parcel of journalism. So it turned into a big blowout, drag out argument in the New Mexican. And I remember throwing my credential at his feet and saying, I don't need the fucking Santa Fe New Mexican. And I walked out. I got, he told me don't come in the next day. So I stayed in Albuquerque. What was kind of interesting is I will give James, James is a good dude. He came down to New Mexico to Albuquerque the next day and tried to patch up things with me. But the short of it was there were certain people in the New Mexican newsroom who thought I was a hothead, you know, a a prima donna, whatever they thought about me. It got back to the editor at the time. And even though me and James had appeared to patch it up and we were moving on, we were going to, you know, we had a St. Mike's football championship to cover a couple days later they called me into a meeting and they said essentially you resign under duress or we're going to give you the axe so I was like all right so I resigned under duress and you know I was out of journalism full-time for six seven eight months and that was very difficult that was probably one of the lowest points in my life um
0: at At a young age at the end of this though you somehow find your way back into journalism i i understand moving out of albuquerque moving out of albuquerque moving out of new mexico and heading to western massachusetts tell me about the paper you went to work for um in massachusetts
1: so at that point i'm out of journalism full-time six seven eight months whatever it was i was working kind of freelancing uh, in uh, Santa Rosa for Emmy Springlemyer uh, and I was doing. He wanted me to migrate away from sports. He's really like my pivot point in life and in journalism. My journalist. Yeah, life.
0: let's tell me did you, for for the for the audience. Tell tell uh, people a little about a little bit about him. He's a he's an interesting fellow.
1: Oh, uh, so Emmy e- Springlemyer is a, a really well-known Albuquerque journalist. Well, well-known like even Ashley is pretty good national profile that the New York Times has written about him. Um, and w- what I understand about his trajectory, he was a uh, Sandia prep uh, grad, uh, went on to work at the now defunct Rocky Mountain Times. Um, the
0: Rocky Mountain so, News but, in Denver, right.
1: Th- thank you, thank you. Rocky, Na- Rocky Mountain News in Denver, and uh, he was a political reporter, ace there, uh, and he-, he ended up migrating back to New Mexico along the way after having these really big uh, political reporting gigs and he uh bought the uh, local newspaper there in santa rosa and stayed there for years and he was kind of a he was essentially what i was in socorro but for the whole newspaper he was a one man uh running band and he did everything you know reported shot photos captions you know wrote editorials like if you saw the Santa Rosa newspaper on any given week, it was Emmy Springelmeyer all over the place. Emmy Springelmeyer covering news, Emmy Springelmeyer covering sports Emmy Springelmeyer writing the opinion page and uh, he was a hell of a reporter, very influential kind of mentor to me who helped migrate me away from sports. He, he said, I don't want you writing sports for me. when you're a freelancer for me you know, maybe I'll send you to a sports game here and there but I want you writing news. Day. I want you to expand your horizons. And, you know, I was kind of reluctant at first because, you know, I thought all I could really do was sports. And that's kind of a debilitating handicap that you get when you're in sports journalism, where you think, oh, this is what I've done. This is all I can do. And I learned very quickly otherwise. I, I learned very quickly that I could do a lot of other types of reporting, hard-hitting reporting. And I had already demonstrated flashes of that with that, Little John stories, so he really had me doing strictly news and, you know, covering meetings here and there, uh, writing uh, news features, different types of uh, hard-hitting, you know, more well-rounded coverage, and I ended up parlaying that. I worked there six, seven, eight months, whatever it was, you know, going up week to week and kind of surviving off the freelance money that I, uh, I made doing that, and I ended up finally months later, landing a a full-time gig at the North Adams Transcript in North Adams, Massachusetts. So I was kind of at a crossroads in my professional and personal life, lived in New Mexico all 23, 24 years of my life, and now was faced with this cross-country trek away from my family to pursue something that was near and dear to my heart. At the same time, it required me to put myself on an island, away from family, away from friends, away from everything that I knew in life at that point. And I remember my dad was really the one who impressed upon me the importance of journeying out and making my own mark. And he had done that to a much uh, smaller degree, but it's not, it doesn't make it any more less momentous. He, he grew up in uh, Hatch, New Mexico. It's a small rural farming community in the southern part of the state it's near Las Cruces. And he kind of had the same sort of professional sojourn moment where there weren't any jobs in Las Cruces. He was in college and needed to make money. And he ended up leaving college, leaving Las Cruces, New Mexico State, and going down to Alfred to find a gig. And he ended up linking up with. Albuquerque Fire Department, and that was his career as whole life. Loved it. So I was kind of at this same moment that my dad had experienced decades before where, you know, I could stay and roll the dice and maybe end up completely out of journalism, or I could go take this, you know, small daily gig in Massachusetts and see what happens. So, you know, my dad said what he said. I listened to my dad. I left. Cross-country trip across the, across the U.S., no, got there to Massachusetts, and I lasted 18 days.
0: So, uh, all and, right. So, I, yeah, I didn't go.
1: I didn't go running home to mom and dad. That's not what happened. I, okay. I literally, I got fired. I got, I outdid myself.
0: <laughs> you, 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 saw what you did at, uh, at the New Mexican, and you, and you raised yourself uh, a <laughs> stack of chips. So, so let's um, let's get to the story that seemed to have been the uh, the sticking point there. Um, maybe two and a half weeks into your your job. You wrote a story about a girls' high school soccer player in which you made a reference to the movie Mean Girls. Tell me about the... Uh, f- flesh out the details of the story and then tell me what happened after it got published.
1: Same type of deal. Access, you know, sports journalism. Same type of thing. You know, I get assigned to... Go cover this uh, you know, feature on this young soccer player who had transferred from a pretty prestigious high school to a tech school there in the North Adams area. It was McCann Tech, if I remember correctly. And so, you know, I don't really know what I'm going into. I'm just looking for an angle, right? Like that's that's what journalism entails, right? That you have these press conferences, and they don't say anything. And you're like, I I, I need something that. Grasp on to because I got to write something, right? So that's essentially what I was doing. I was uh, foraging, right? I'm looking for an angle. So I get there and I start talking to her and we're talking and, you know, she's like most other young, uh, you know, soccer players, a little, little timid, but I'm feeling her out and she's kind of warming up to me. And there's this moment where I ask her a question about why she transferred because right, she went from a really good high school with high performing high school to you know, what, for lack of a better term, would end up being the, the word, in, sticking word in question, an inferior high school, right, like lower performing tech school in a rougher part of the area. And she sacrificed this to go to this school. And she said the reason that she transferred was because her last school was quote, like the movie Mean Girls, very clicky, Uh, there were some mean-spirited girls she had some she had a hard time on the soccer team you know she wasn't getting playing time some of the, the girls on the soccer team had kind of ostracized her and she had enough of it so she transferred so I thought wow this is a very candid quote not a canned quote from a young prep athlete so I ran with it so I kind of told the story about why she transferred schools and that's the soundbite that sunk and sunk me. <laughs> that, you know, this school was like the movie Mean Girls. So they, you know, my sports editor looks at it, approves the story. The editor in chief doesn't look, he only looks at A1 copy. This is what he would say later on. I only look at A1 copy. They publish the story. My sports editor sends out a tweet Oh, hey, everyone read the story. Great story. Everyone's happy. I'm, you know, I'm on to my next story. Come in the next day and the editor-in-chief, uh, his name was David Fossey, was pissed. Apparently had gotten some calls from, same type of deal, upset parents, you know, upset school officials that uh, apparently had denigrated the schools, and you know, it's crazy that, you know, you're, you're publishing some sort of story with school's saying that our school's like the movie Mean Girls. And it, it, it unfolded on itself into this big, like, scandal. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't even know what the hell is going on i'm like uh, am i a reporter or you know do you guys just want me to show up with a thumb up my ass and, and you know what, what do you want me to do so i rolled with a candid quote and i wrote the story you guys edited approved it and now you guys are coming at after, back after me with this like uh, you know reactive politics you know like this re-examination of conscience you can't you can't do that so they ended up having meetings all day they end up like roping me into a meeting after they made me write four or five stories that day and they fired me and then on top of that they like uh, scuttled all the stories that i spent all day writing so i was kind of pissed about that and they basically said here give me your keys give me your equipment you're gone bye go you know figure it out on yourself and then the next day while i'm still reeling from this they run an editorial apologizing and essentially slamming me for this editorial oversight, I think is the way they put it. Uh, you know, basically, oh, we're sorry we run this story. It was offensive. We apologized to the McCann Tech and the other school for, you know, egregious editorial oversight and just railroading me for this story. So I got pissed. And I remember talking to my parents, and they were like, just, just come home. Let it go. Come home, and I said, no fuck that. I'm not letting it go." And I'm coming at them guns blazing. So I wrote my own rebuttal to their nonsense. Where it, and where did just, you
0: where did you post the rebuttal?
1: It was just on a it was on one of my friend's blogs. Really, uh, uh, it was on one of my friend's blogs that she ran, uh, Daily Noodle, Nightly, if I remember correctly. Um, she ran it and. I just told my story like I, I basically laid out exactly what had happened and how that it was a situation where reactive politics you know uh, kill the reactive politics kill the messenger type situation and I just I did my job they approved the story and now they want to come back and you know put my head on a chopping block because they got blowback it was crazy and I, I think the headline that I end up rolling with was I got fired for being a journalist <laughs> which summed up the story that's what happened and it blew up nationally like uh, Pointer picked it up BuzzFeed picked it up and I parlayed it into another job with the sister newspaper in Connecticut of the company that had just fired me so I ended up working at same digital first media company at a, at a sister paper in Torrington Connecticut but, uh, and it, was that was, was that months. the Connecticut
0: Law Tribune?
1: No, that was it. Was a smaller, smaller daily in Torrington, Connecticut. It was a Torrington Registered
0: Citizen. How long were you there so for? Seven, eight months. And was that were seven you? Months. So even though ME had had advised you to get out of sports, um, you was was the Massachusetts gig your was that ultimately your final sports gig or did you continue to do sports for the? Connecticut paper.
1: No, I was done with it, I was done with it. Finally, (laughs) at long uh, last. Yeah, finally, I was like, I should've listened to Ebby earlier, (laughs) and uh, I didn't, and you know, they they shit-canned me again. I'm done done with sports, I'm done with sports. So they, luckily, uh, they ended up hiring me on as a news reporter, the registered citizen, I was covering Board of Education and and crime, I was covering the Litchfield court system over there, and I, I I loved covering courts. Board of Education, you know, you got some prima donnas that, you know, like hearing themselves talk or whatever, but, yeah, you know, it was part of the gig, and I, I did really well there. You know, I came into my own uh, as a news reporter, and I parlayed that into another gig at the Connecticut Law Tribune about eight, nine months later, um, and that's where I got into my first kind of big national profile type controversy with the prior restraint case.
0: So let's uh, so to so define for our audience what prior restraint is.
1: So essentially, prior restraint, to the layman, it's it's government censorship of journalism, right? And we're talking about the seminal New York Times Washington Post case with the Pentagon Papers, where you know the Nixon administration, the president Nixon at the time, was trying to get the New York Times and the Washington Post to capitulate to his demands that they not publish stories or not publish outright the Pentagon Papers, which was this confidential study It was conducted seven, 8,000 pages on the Vietnam War. And their contention was essentially that it's gonna jeopardize national security. So they tried to convince the Supreme Court to uh, you know, get the New York Times to not publish stories or the Pentagon Papers and they got slapped down, right? That's, that's an egregious censorship of journalism before it even speaks, that's what prior restraint is. It's, uh, you know, the censorship, the scuttling of a story before it's even laid on print.
0: And so, what was the specific uh, matter or reporting that you were covering that precipitated this?
1: It was crazy. It wasn't a story about national security. It was a story about child security, which <laughs> much lower barometer, right? And they're over. You know, the state of Connecticut, a judge in Connecticut is over here issuing some sort of a prior restraint injunction to scuttle a story that's not on the same level as the Pentagon Papers. It was honestly an embarrassment to journalism, a denigration of journalism more than it was a shining moment for it, Uh, and and I say that wholeheartedly with myself being involved in that, right? Like, it's crazy that we had gotten to a point in American history where we had a judge in Connecticut and later in New Jersey who thought that a story about child security rose to the level of a prior restraint injunction. So there was a, right, oh, I'm sorry.
0: So let me tell you about what I know of it, and then you can kind of flesh it out as you you see fit. This was a custody dispute um, that you were reported on in which you discovered a document that had been inadvertently filed on the open civil docket of the court, and therefore it was posted on the court's website. So you found it online. Right um and the and this was this was filed by the attorney of the di- of the divorcing father of this custody dispute um correct what was what was interesting about this story to begin with why why were you writing about this as opposed to any other custody dispute
1: so you know you were right uh, custody disputes a dime a dozen uh, but i was at the connecticut law Tribune. It was in each legal publication based in hartford connecticut so we would cover the legal system and court cases and you know all, all types of different legal issues. That was our bread and butter. So initially when I pitched this story to my editor, I was like, hey, it's these two attorneys who were involved in this bitter custody dispute and the Department of Children and Families got involved in it. And essentially it was like an egregious overreach by DCF. They took these kids from these parents because they were involved in a bitter custody, uh, bitter divorce battle, right? But there was no substantiation of any of the allegations that had been made. The kids were not in any sort of peril or jeopardy. Uh, they were in what, by all accounts, seemed to be a loving environment. And basically, it was, you know, mom and dad couldn't get along anymore. And, you know, you know, sniping each other, saying little mean-spirited things about each other, and you know, <laughs> Dyfus basically snatched the kids. So I just looked at it on its face, I was like, this seems like an egregious overreach. And I don't really get involved, I wouldn't get involved in a lot of those, because they're a diamond dozen. But this one was so egregious and so interesting, because it involved two attorneys that had, you know, some sort of profile in, in Connecticut, that it was newsworthy, right? And there we go with the subjectiveness again. What, what, what is newsworthy? Well, this to me was newsworthy. So I pitched it to my editor, uh, Paul Sussman at the time, and he didn't really buy it. He was, he was like, he wasn't really convinced about it. I was like, uh, I essentially told him, dude, Paul, like you, you gotta trust me on this one. You gotta just let me do my reporting because I'm telling you this is gonna, this is gonna be good. Uh, I didn't know it was gonna blow up into a national story, but I thought it was gonna be good. So I started digging And getting all the documents and everything that i need to write it up and i end up falling upon by luck uh this habeas corpus that the father had filed to try to uh, get custody back of his children and habeas corpus in a family court proceeding is like unheard of it's a very novel approach because the habeas corpus is a a motion, uh, a court pleading that you file, and usually in criminal cases, it's really, uh, you know, bring the body, right? Basically, bring the prisoner. Show it, it's like a uh, show them up to court type thing, right? That's what habeas essentially stands for. So, this, this dad was trying to get his kids back, and he filed this really, his attorney filed this really novel approach to try to get the kids back. So, that's why it was really a story. I couldn't really find another instance where, you know, in the course of a child custody case, somebody had filed a habeas petition. So we wrote it from that angle and uh, started doing the reporting, made my calls. I, I, I made the calls to the mother to get her side of the account. And instead of calling me back, she slapped the Connecticut Law Tribune with court papers and roped us into this whole prior restraint case and the whole. Over you know, the uh, right, the
0: document, the document that you had discovered that had been inadvertently filed in the wrong through the wrong mechanism, was the habeas petition that you then referenced right. in your story, and that was what she then sought to uh, uh, to issue a prior restraint, thereby right. forbidding any any additional publication. And I don't know did it did it also demand that you take whatever you had. Written up to that point, well, we didn't
1: even get the we didn't even get the initial story out right. It was in the course of the reporting. Like I was finalizing my calls, we were getting ready to press play on the story, and then we get slapped with this. You know, we get slapped with this uh, court order that you know we can't publish, we can't publish anything, we can't publish the papers, we can't publish our story about the papers. It was crazy, and you know it was crazy at the time. But like I was on my way out at the law and I had just gotten hired in the Trentonian. It was kind of transition phase, so was uh you know it was within days leaving for the Trentonian and we just get slapped with this uh, this, this prior restraint injunction so um, like back and forth between Connecticut trying to deal with this whole matter and uh, you know the C- Connecticut Law Tribune God bless them they fought the good fight and we ended up winning long story short I mean it took a long time and a lot of other reporters kind of had to cover the whole uh, controversy and question when I was at the uh, Trentonian and really what I what my role in that was was I, I was pursuing and writing the initial story but I kind of became a, a kind of spokesman for the whole matter so to speak right I, I almost became the story so you were the I face became an, I was I was like the advocate for the behind the scenes story on the story right so I was kind of I remember contacting different media organizations to try to elicit coverage of this because i just thought it was so egregious and i um you know the harper current uh, and and some other pointer and some other places picked it up and uh, ran with it and i basically we uh we publicity shamed the judge into uh, rescinding his prior restraint injunction and what happened was a lot of too many news outlets had published stories with essentially the account of what was going on, um, without necessarily referencing all the details from the habeas that was under seal, or I don't, some people might even got some of it, but they got enough of the details out that the judge ended up undoing his order and saying that it was moot. So from that point, we, we won the, we won the, won the case. And we were free to ferret out the rest of our reporting and, get the story out. So it ended up turning, I remember that it ended up, I wrote it while I was at the Trentonian um, at this point, but it, it exploded, it ended up being this huge monstrous blowout story about like this whole constitutional injustice from the newspapers standpoint, and also melded on and bootstrapped onto this whole weird issue custody case with the attorneys. It was like one of the most riveting stories I've ever written in my
0: short career what ultimately happened this for, in the uh, custody case
1: uh, eventually the last I checked up, he eventually like they loosened the restrictions on his on the father's ability to see his kids and if, if, I, if I stand corrected it, it, those cases play out so long but I believe he ended up getting they ended up resolving the custody dispute and the mother and father like worked it out to where he, he eventually got to see his kids and to have custody
0: of his kids, if I remember correctly. So you mentioned, so in, I think in, it was around early 2015 is when you got the job at the Trentonian, which is the, the city paper in Trenton, New Jersey. In April of that year, April 2015, the Connecticut Society of Professional jo- Journalists awarded you and two of your colleagues and the attorney who represented the paper in the prior restraint fight an award um, for your, for your vigor and your journalistic gumption um, on, on all your parts. Um, and then in late 2015, and I know about this because you, you blogged about it in retrospect, in late 2015 you, you, you began to notice some health issues, although you didn't quite figure it all out at the time. But tell me what happened in, let's say, December 2015 um, with you physically
1: so I think it was, I'm trying to remember exactly the timeline gets a little murky, but I think it was like December, 2014 heading into 2015. I noticed that my right testicle was very swollen. Um, and you know, I I was young at the time, otherwise healthy, kind of shrugged it off. Thought, Oh, maybe I have a hernia. Maybe it's something else. Like didn't really want to deal with it. Um, and didn't deal with it quickly enough. And so I kind of put it off And so, uh, you know, I was dating this, this girl at the time and she kind of like impressed upon me, like you need to m- take care of your health. Like, you know, you, you need because I had told her about this and she said, you need to go get that checked out. Like that, whatever that is, that doesn't sound good. And I, I remember like before I went in, I even like was joking with one of my good friends, Esteban, on the phone. I was like, ah, you know, man, it's, it, you know, it's probably like a hernia there's no way you know, and I even said, oh, well, you know, jokingly, well, maybe it's cancer, like kind of jokingly. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I, I went to the, uh, the, the hospital and I went to the, uh, urgent care and the, the doctor there looked at it and felt it. And, the size of it and immediately sent me to the emergency room at Robert Wood Johnson in Hamilton, New Jersey and said, "Uh, dude, that looks very serious. you got to go get that checked out. And I remember going to the emergency room at RWJ and all I really remember is them kind of running tests on me and looking at it and all I really remember is the printout that I got. And (laughs) the doctor kind of looked at me handed it to me and said oh do you have any pain do you need me to prescribe you anything and I was like no I'm good and he handed me the paper and I'm walking out and I look at the paper and it says suspected neoplasm right and that's like medical jargon so I had an idea what it was but I wanted to google it to you know be certain and you know a suspected neoplasm is essentially like a cancerous tumor, suspected cancerous tumor. So I remember being in the car and seeing my life flash before me, like, oh shit, like, I think I have cancer. And it all happened so quickly. Um, you know, I, they sent me to a specialist, and he said, dude, that, that's that gotta go. You know, that's enormous, right? We gotta take that out, and we gotta biopsy it and see what it is. So. Uh, a couple of days later, they like whisked me into surgery and I, I ended up getting, it's called an orchiectomy procedure where they essentially remove your testicle and they remove, uh, you know, the testic cord and everything. So they just completely took it off and they had to biopsy it and it ended up coming back that it was, uh, cancerous. It was like a very aggressive, um, multi-layered with all kinds of different forms of uh, you know your spectrum of cancer but it was a a very aggressive germ cell cancer and the only thing that had going for me at that point was this very early stage so at that point they didn't think it had spread outside of my testicle so they hadn't recommended chemotherapy they said it was stage one we caught it early removed it We'll send you for some CAT scans later on, a couple of weeks, and hopefully if they come back clear, you'll be good. So I remember uh, it was about February 2015, around President's Day. They sent me for my scans. You know, I go and do them, and, you know, a few days later, I get the results, and it appears to be clear. And, you know, they tell me, oh, well, you know, it looks like you're good. You don't need chemotherapy, but essentially <laughs> follow up with an oncologist. They didn't assign me an oncologist at RWJ, and I, in retrospect, I wish they had, because I, I dropped the ball in some sense of the word, and I, I didn't follow up with oncologists. I essentially thought, no, I'm good. I made one call to an oncologist there at RWJ, and I didn't get a call back, and you know, my, I was turning 26, so my insurance was lapsing under my parents, and the company insurance I had through Digital First that was offered to me wasn't very good. Very expensive. So I was, you know, I was in a situation where my insurance was going to lapse. It just told me I'm good, I'm healthy. The, the early stage cancer, we caught it. I thought I was good. So essentially, I never followed up with the oncologist. And I'm, in retrospect, I was rolling the dice. Right? But I've always, I've always been a gambler. I've always loved gambling cards, dice, whatever it is. But what I learned is you don't, you don't gamble with your life. You don't gamble with your life and I had to learn a very hard lesson because a year and a half later in December 2016 my testicular cancer either came back it was either a recurrence or it was never cured in the first place because I didn't get preventative or you know, proactive chemotherapy and it came back with a vengeance it was stage 3c metastatic testicular cancer, which is the worst form of testicular cancer you can have. And the way I found out that I had this was I was having some weird symptoms um, for a few months, even maybe even as far as a year back that I didn't really address, Uh, you know, like blood in the urine, things that were seemed to kind of innocuous, somewhat disconcerting, but somewhat innocuous. And they would like resolve themselves on their own. So I never really followed up on it. And I remember being at work in December 14th, 2016, and I had been spitting up blood a week, week and a half before, and I was concerned about it. I Googled it, and it, it didn't look good. Like, I just didn't want to confront my potential reality. And I, I'm, I'm at, I get up on December 14th, and I had this foreboding feeling that morning. I felt tired, lethargic. Something was wrong. Your body was telling you something is wrong. And I remember texting a colleague, and she's like, hey, look, just you know, get up, get out of work. We'll go have some coffee, you know, we'll figure it out. You're going to be fine I'm trying to comfort me. I get up, go to work. I'm at the courthouse. <laughs> I, I actually was talking to Lloyd Grove at the time. He had called me that day because he was... He wanted to write about the prior restraint case that was kind of unfolding at that time at the Trentonian. I spent about an hour talking to him. I go to meet my colleague from the Times of Trenton. Uh, her name was Anna Merriman. I go to meet her at a coffee shop. Where I go downstairs I meet her in the lobby of the courthouse. We're walking over to the little courthouse cafe in Trenton, New Jersey, and I felt clammy, cold, and I could not walk. I was out of breath. I had no energy, and I got about halfway to the courthouse cafe and I collapsed on the concrete. And I could not get up. Uh, I had to sit there for about three or four minutes to finally you know, get enough energy, muster up enough energy to peel myself off the concrete. And walk across the street, and when I got into the courthouse cafe, I collapsed in the, uh, at the table. And I remember, I remember that uh, Anna had to go get her her car to drive me back to my car, and uh, I made it back to my house. And uh, I was texting with uh, who would eventually become my wife, and. I was telling her about some of these issues, and uh, she was very concerned And she told me, you you got to go into the hospital. Like, I didn't want to go. I was supposed to get on a plane in two days to go back to Albuquerque to see my family for Christmas. And uh, she was like, you got to go to the hospital. I'm coming to pick you up right now. And she came and picked me up, and we went back to RWJ and, uh, you know, Week leaning on her in the emergency room, waiting to be seen, and they finally kind of run me in, run me through all these diagnostic tests, CAT scans, X-rays, blood work, the whole nine yards. And I remember the the doctor at the time came into the room and delivered what I knew was going to be terrible news. You know, I I could see it coming. It was like uh, you know. It wasn't like a Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson moment where you you didn't see that punch coming. I saw that punch coming from a mile away and I couldn't duck it, you know? And she told me like, you know, she she put her hand on my leg and told me my my cancer was back and it was very spread out. It was metastatic. It was all over the place. It was in every vital organ. And they they ended up running MRIs and further tests later on over the next day, day and a half. And they end up finding small pea-sized lesions in my brain. It had just spread all over my body. And at that point, this is kind of where I was having that exchange with Lloyd and I had told him, I'm, you know, I'm over here at the hospital. It looks pretty bad, but I'm gonna see what they say. And if, if my prognosis is, is death, then I'm, I'm going back to die in my hometown.
0: You mentioned that the reason why Lloyd was interested in you is because of your second prior restraint issue. So let's let's kind of wind back a little bit and explain, while while you were dealing with all these health matters um, and this very scary um, prognosis, you're also dealing with arguably maybe one of the more interesting journalistic matters you've had in in a long string of things, which is when you were at the Trentonian, not so long after your stint at the the Law Tribune, um, you once again are confronted with an effort to silence the reporting you had been working on in a uh, child custody or a child endangerment uh, story, um, and this time in a different state and from a different from a different, uh, group of, 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 uh, of people. Can you give me uh, can you give me some background now on, on this and we'll, and we'll marry it up and figure out how these tie together, um, around the same period of time. So to go back
1: a little bit, we was around late October, I think it was like October 24th, if I remember correctly. And, um, we had written previously like the month before about this charter school student, a five-year-old who had been found with uh, heroin package, 30 heroin packets at school, and you know, the authorities got called, the was involved because this kid had lethal drugs at school that they found in his, his lunchbox, the teacher found in his lunchbox, so I remember writing that story and not, not getting a whole lot, you know, maybe it was a 5, 8, 10 inch story, but it would, a month later, mushroom into, you know, thousands of words and hours and art, other articles about what start off as a very small story about this kid with heroin at, at the school, because a month later, in October, his mother comes to the Trentonian newspaper and asked to speak to a reporter and by luck or <laughs> whatever fate, if that exists, I happen to be the reporter that uh, went and answered the door and, and, and went out to talk to her. And she tells me in short order that, hey, do you remember that kid who was found with drugs at school about a month ago? Well, that's my son. And they just found him with crack cocaine again a couple of days ago at school, and I was like, "Oh, wow! Well, that's newsworthy to say the least." So I was like, "You know what? Basically, can, give me some background, what's going on?" And she said, "Well, there's a you know a, a, an emergency removal hearing before a family judge here in about an hour, hour and a half at noon." And I was like, okay, great. Well, you know, I'll go, we'll try to petition the judge to to let me in to the hearing and we'll go from there. So I I go over to the courthouse and I meet her there uh, for the emergency removal hearing. I remember being on the fourth floor of the courthouse at Mercer County Civil Family Court and she's up there so I'm, you know, I'm talking to her, I'm like waiting, and everybody at court is just waiting. And I end up seeing some other people, and there was an individual, his name was Darren Freedom Green, he was a community activist who ended up later on going to run for, uh, in the last election, mayor of the city of Trenton, uh, he was kind of a dark horse, ended up coming in fourth place, but he was there at the courthouse at the time, and he recognized me, and he he knew I was a reporter for the Trentonian, and he was actually there in support of the uh, one of the grandmothers of the children, uh, the paternal grandmother uh, of the boy. And he sees me talking to the boy's mother, and so after she finishes up with me, he initiates a conversation with me, and I, you know I said, hey, can you know essentially can I get you on record? Why are you here? What's the deal with this whole thing? And, you know, he gives me his side of it. So I talked to him for about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, The boy's mother at at some point comes back, she had left. And then she comes back, she had left to go talk to a, a family court official and comes back 10, 15 minutes later and she has this child custody complaint in her hand. And she's like cursing, swearing, very upset, very animated and uh she at some point we're talking conversing and you know i'm saying what's going on she said shows me the paper and i said well you know can i have this and she said or she said you can you can have this you can have this you know because i'm looking at it i'm trying to take notes or whatever and she tells me outright you can have this you can have this paper so i was like okay cool (laughs) you know how often does a journalist just you know, get offered, you know, any sort of information, let alone court papers. I was cool with it. I was like, yeah, you're, you're, of course, this is going to help my story. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll oblige you and you know, take these 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 papers. So I finished talking to Darren, and uh, and then you know, I talked to the paternal grandmother and get her side of it, and you know. Then I go back and find the mother, and I still have the paper, so I told her, look, you know, I wanted to give her back her original copy, so I tell her, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a copy of this. Do you want to go downstairs with me to make the copy? She said, no, you know, essentially go, go do it yourself, and then, you know, I'll be up here. So I go downstairs, I make my copy. And then I go back upstairs and I return her original copy because, you know, it's her papers. So I wanted her to have her original papers. I gave them, went back, gave them to her, talked to her and her mother a little bit, you know, ex- exchanged pleasantries and said my goodbyes. And I'm walking out and some dude, I don't know who he was at the time, right. It's he's some guy, right. And he's wearing a suit, you know, it seems to look official looking, but I don't know who he is. I've never seen him in my life. He starts, Telling me, uh, excuse me, sir, you you know you need to stop. Uh, you, you need to give me back those court those papers, blah blah blah. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. Like, I obtained this legally. I'm, I'm repeating this, telling this, out loud. I, I legally obtained this. So he six a sheriff's officer on me. At this point, I'm like walking toward the stairwell exit, and this he ended up being. It turned out he ended up being a DHE, a, 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 an attorney general for the. State New Jersey State Attorney General's office. This DAG and the Sheriff's Officer are trailing me. And I can hear the Sheriff's At that point, I, call, I like was like, oh, something's going down. So I'm on the phone. I call my boss. And I'm trying to give him a hurried 411 of what's going on while I'm in live stream time. Like This is unfolding on itself while I'm on the phone with him. He's, the Sheriff's Officer's chase, chasing me and I'm walking. She's right, she's right in tow. We're going down, she's on the radio, telling the sheriff's officers at the front desk, oh, he's headed your way, blah, blah, blah. I go down the stairwell, I get to the front exit, I go to leave, and they stop and detain me for a moment. And I remember the sergeant in charge came over and I told him, look, I, I obtained these legally. You guys cannot detain me and keep me. I obtained these legally. So he ends up making the call that they gotta let me go. You gotta let me walk, because I obtained them legally. So I walk out, and I drive back to the Trentonian, and I start writing, and I start round making calls, and trying to round out my reporting for this story. And the precipice of it is are these court papers that fill in all the gaps that I needed for the child custody case. And while I'm working on the story, my boss gets a phone call and a representative of the state attorney general's office saying, accusing me of stealing the documents, right? So apparently in that time, the mother who had voluntarily provided me these documents while I'm on the way to Trenton had made a series of calls trying to encourage me to return back to the courthouse and give her the papers back. And I said, no, you already voluntarily handed them over. I'm, I'm going to write my story. Like I'm not, I'm not coming back. So I don't know if the state attorney general's office put pressure on her, threatened to charge her. That's what I surmise. But chief, they, they were they had her kid, right? They had her kid, and they're coming at her saying, "Oh, you shouldn't have given these papers up," and they're trying to put a what they what appears to them is a bandaid on a gunshot wound, right? So the only really thing they can do, they can't do anything to anybody, but you know we'll do it to the reporter. So they either coerced her to pressure her put the screws to her and she says oh we stole the document (laughs) which is a complete ball based lie right i end up having to testify about all this stuff but i didn't steal a document she voluntarily gave it to me and this kick-started the whole melodrama and so the ag's office calls my boss says i stole the papers they end up running with this horseshit story memorializing in the court papers you know saying that i you know you know essentially that uh the woman who voluntarily provided these court papers, they have some sort of an addendum in, in one of their motions that, oh, she's essentially a dupe, and that, you know, I'm much smarter than her, and that I essentially document raped her. <laughs> I, and that, those are those my words, but that's essentially what they were alleging that I document raped her, that I stole and duped and coerced and pressured her into giving me these documents, which is not the case at all. So, you know, they end up getting a judge to go along with their prior restraint injunction.
0: I'm on deadline. So I'm she, so the she, story. Who, fi- who filed? Was it the, the AG's office or was it her? I guess it was the AG's office who filed the prior yeah, restraint. Yeah, he
1: goes. So, the, so the DAG that was tailing me goes before the judge in an emergency hearing and asks orally for a prior restraint injunction to preclude us from publishing the documents or anything of a story that's that has any details from the documents. So, they get that order as I'm pounding on my story on deadline. And they call over the Trentonian, email it, have it served on us. And so I would finished the story by that point, but we were aware of the situation, so the attorneys at our company got involved. And once we got served, they essentially had me strip out, delete all the details that were included from the documents to basically play it safe. And we published the story that day based off the extensive interviews that I would conducted with the various parties involved and what I knew on, on backlink. So what was, was what was
0: it? What was story. the nugget from the? What was in those documents that were? What were the details that you weren't then able to publish? Oh my
1: God, there was too many to name, but the, the big vicious one was. Uh, there was a, there was a few of them, but essentially what had happened was that the after the first incident where the five year old was found with drugs at the uh, school, the department children and families, there's a subdivision under them uh, the child protection. Okay. They didn't, they chose not to initiate removal proceedings the first time that the boy was found with drugs at school. They decided to put the paternal grandmother, who as best as it can tell as the documents did, was kind of um, home hopping. She didn't have a, she was kind of transient, didn't have a real Established place of residence, they decided to put her on essentially a, a parental plan that enabled her, if she followed certain parameters, to retain uh, custody of the child rather than them initiating removal procedures at that point. Okay, so so this threat that so, was so, a big so, nugget, and right, then on top of that, right. the the boy's father. I neglected to mention this earlier, but after the first drug incident, the boy's father and his grand, excuse me, the boy's father and his then-girlfriend were charged with child endangerment because his son was found with drugs at school. The other big nugget in the documents was that they could not link the drugs to the dad, and their case was crumbling before their eyes, and this document showed it. They actually suspected another man of those drugs belonging to another man who was, a girlfriend's brother, so they had a complete crumbling shit case against the father, and he's going through this whole process. And it doesn't appear from what the documents state that he ever had the drugs, knew about the knew about the thirty packets of heroin, had any sort of custody, anything about the drugs, right? So those were the two big notes that the DCF basically failed this kid the first time, and then they were. The authorities were railroading or appearing to railroad the father for the
0: the, the dope. So the, the AG's prerogative was not to protect the mother or the child. This was not, I mean, they were, this was a covering their own ass of the state, you know, both in terms of the AG's case and some of the other state agencies and their, and what they had done in, in stewarding this issue you know, prior to it getting to this to this uh, point in the uh, in the court system,
1: and, and that's essentially what the mother's contention was, right? That the, the the officials entrusted with protecting children weren't protecting children at all. Like she was very upset because she had been trying to gain custody of the child even before this whole drug incident first happened, and then she had been petitioning the court even after the after the initial drug incident happened to get full custody of the kid and essentially it never went anywhere it didn't go anywhere and she has her issues of her own she had been in trouble with the law uh, uh, previously so i think that uh, that factored into it factored into the judicial system's apprehension to order any sort of custody even though there was just like seminal moment where the kids found with drugs at school you know it just he got he just fell through the cracks right and then DCF didn't take him in the first instance, and now they're taking him in the second instance, and it's it's a, an explosive story, right? Like, well, he's found with drugs twice. Why didn't you guys take steps to take him in the first instance? Why did you allow a child to remain in that type of environment? And then you're, on top of that, your case is crumbling against your father, and then you have to think about it on a statewide level. Like, child protection services in New Jersey have been under a lot of scrutiny over the decades. Even before Proceeding when I got involved, there's been like countless cases of just in, like grievous, grievous injustices where kids were either taken or not taken, died in in, in child protective custodies, uh, just horrible child abuse cases that uh, resonated from DCF's involvement. So it's like, what were, who were they protecting? Because it certainly wasn't children. And then now that they got their little bully arm, the Attorney General's office, to, to you know, take up this mantle and, and try to deprive the public of knowing exactly their actions or inactions in this case.
0: How did the newspaper, how did the Trentonian respond? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: You know, it was uh, tenuous back and forth over so like a month. Right. And this didn't, this, when it initially happened, it didn't really gain tr- traction in the media. It took like a month, a month and a half, closer toward December when all this stuff started kind of finally coming to light. And I, I'd been pissed throughout, right? Because the, the digital first media's uh, attorneys and the AG's attorneys had been essentially trying to negotiate some sort of settlement throughout this whole month, month and a half that it played out. And essentially what happened was I, I didn't want to accept the settlement. Because the settlement wasn't a settlement it was a stick it to me right we had to destroy the documents we couldn't publish anything that were based on the documents we couldn't publish the documents themselves and you know we had to make efforts to destroy every single copy that we had ever had possessed or made uh, over the last month and a half and the only thing we could report was uh basically what the government was Uh, willing to confirm and willing to tell us about the case that was essentially what their agreement offer was if you can find it through other sources you can report it but i'm like i don't need other sources i have the the i have it straight from the 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 dog's mouth right here on the on the on the papers i wasn't going to get it from anywhere else everything that needed to be told was in those court records and they knew that and that's why they wanted them not publish that badly, that they would go to the efforts of criminalizing or threatening to criminalize reporting. It was like, it was a mind blowing episode.
0: We well, have yeah, on that note, what was the legal jeopardy? You were told that you were potentially. in?
1: So because they kept going on with this notion, the AG's office kept going on with this notion that I had somehow coerced or, or stole the documents. They invoked this like little known, little used like legal statute that uh, if I knew the documents were confidential and I encouraged the release of them, that they could potentially criminally prosecute me. Right? So I didn't, I didn't know if they ever took it to a grand jury, if they did anything. But there was always that threat of criminal prosecution over my head that was dangled over my head. And that's what they used as a you know, hammer and gavel in the negotiations to try to get me to bend to their will. And I was like, I don't give a damn if you charge me, go ahead and charge me. Uh, because I didn't steal the documents. I obtained this lawfully. I have a first amendment right to publish this and you guys can fabricate, um, and obfuscate all you want. I will never bow to the attorney general's office. And that's essentially, What the straw men at digital first media wanted to do they wanted to bow down to the attorney general's office because the attorney general's office is the most powerful law enforcement agency in the state of new jersey they have endless countless resources they could bleed us dry for lack of a better term and uh but to me this was a watershed moment this was a moment of where blood is thicker than water and you could bleed me dry but I have some more blood to give to this, this whole uh, episode. I, I was willing to go down for it. And, and, and mind you, this was happening well. This was playing out well. I was getting diagnosed with cancer, and they were telling me that, you know, you, you have a 50% chance of living and dying. Initially, they told me you're gonna die, and then it, was, it turned into a 50% chance, and then, you know, you gotta do all this chemotherapy. This played out well. I was fighting for my life. So it was this simultaneous battle of the First Amendment
0: and my life. Did did one motivate the other, or did you at any point? I mean, did, were you steeled in the in the prior restraint fight because of your health scare, or or did you think that you just didn't want to deal with it, with these two things at the same time? It's a it's a very you're very conflicted because right? you want you, you
1: like I told Lloyd the biggest fight of my life was supplanted in 24 hours you know I thought that second prior restraint fight which <laughs> I thought I'd win the lottery before I get involved in another second prior restraint fight they're so rare was the biggest fight of my life and it was it wasn't it just wasn't it became it became you know second because my life was on the line. So the amount of stress and pressure and angst and depression and every cocktail of emotion you could stir up and down is what I experienced through that whole time where I'm like, do you know, conflicted, do you just take the deal? Do I not? But I I just decided that I could not deal in good conscience because I wouldn't be selling out only myself and my newspaper. I would be selling out every journalist in New Jersey, every journalist across the United States. I would be a Benedict Arnold of journalism if I took that deal because I would be absconding my First Amendment rights to publish something something I lawfully obtained. And I was not going to do that, even more so with my life on the line. I was not going to let my potential legacy be that I sold journalism down the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey.
0: So you you mentioned Digital First. Digital First is the parent company of the Trentonian. They they didn't want to put in the legal resources to fight this, so you ended up actually having to get your own attorney, hire hire your own attorney to represent you, isn't that right?
1: It is, and, and God bless him, he's a great man, Bruce Rosen, he took up my case pro bono when we, you know, me and the Trentonian, and Digital First Media, you really have to understand the dynamics, really, Digital First Media is owned by a hedge fund, and all that hedge fund cares about is, you know, raking profit out of out of the Trentonian, just raping, pillaging profit out of the Trentonian. That's all they care about. They cut, cut, cut to the bone, beyond the bone, to the marrow. They just want money. And any money they're not making is money they're losing. And that's how this fight was viewed. It wasn't about journalism. It was about, uh, you know, change in their pocket. And, you know, I I still feel on some level that, that that has probably made me viewed as expendable at my own company to this day right I, I still go in every day worrying like oh you know are yeah. they gonna just get rid of me because I, I have a, a dollar sign associated with my head right so they didn't really want to fight it and what ended up happening was I kind of I, I scuttled the settlement and you know I up to with my own attorney and they were basically forced to fight the good fight that they didn't really want to fight alongside with me for the, for fear of looking like a bunch of sellouts, for lack of a better term, they, I, I, you know, and I admit this, I leveraged the media coverage against my own company because I had no choice, right? They didn't want to fight, so I took the only course of action I could, and it was that was to, to, to leverage the coverage against not only the attorney general's office but against. The Trentonian into you know fighting what should have been a, 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 a you know a, a, something that's a slam dunk right like you you know you fight that even if there's a possibility that you lose you fight that you never you never willingly abscond your First Amendment rights to publish something like that that's just absurd and I, I thought that every journalist in, in America would understand that. And it was a message that really resonated, and you know, they finally kind of, when the Daily Beast story came out, and you know, there there was there was like radio silence from the Trentonian Trentonian upper brass in that story. I think they kind of signed on <laughs> to uh, to you know pursue every avenue to to, to win this case, but it, it, it honestly took almost like a a, a strong I arming. Mean, my own company to get them to understand the importance of this fight and why we should expend every legal resource that we could in the name of journalism <laughs> like that's what journalists that's what news companies do <laughs> so it was, it was mind-boggling to be in like you know bruce's involvement was you know we had these diametrically uh, 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 you know opposed views on it between dfm and, and myself and You know, Bruce came in and represented my interests because Digital First
0: wasn't willing to. Did the fact that you had cancer return and you were battling this, did this also put additional pressure, you think, on your company to at least ostensibly stand by you during this time? Uh... I mean, what? I guess that's a
1: one of those questions. Like, what, what? What? The only answer I could give is like, what do you think? I mean, what? What? What would they look like if not only were they, you know, abandoning the good fight on journalism, but you know, you're you're abandoning your own reporter while he's not only fighting the good fight, but he's fighting for his life. What would that look like? I'm sure that there was an internal discussion that I wasn't privy to about appearance. Right. But that's all it is with digital first. It's just appearance. And that's, I say that still being a digital first employee. And I'm sure that, you know, people might listen to this interview and say, how does he say this type of things? Because it's the truth, right? They they care more about appearance than they do about anything else. So if if they appeared to do something that was going to impact their bottom line or make them look like sellouts or, you know, make them frowned upon in any way, they were more concerned about that than they were actually about me or winning the actual case
0: so what happened in the actual case what happened in the end
1: it took five months it took five long strenuous time consuming worrisome want months to win but we won you know the judge threw out their prior restraint injunction but uh you know bruce's and digital first lawyers' uh, arguments for why this was uh, important public information. Um, The State Attorney General's appealed up the ladder, attempted to appeal up the ladder to get to the appellate court, which roundly rejected their arguments and basically issued uh, an opinion that affirmed, you know, other court cases around prior restraint. That it's, I remember the judges quoted another case that said that The prior restraint is the least tolerable infringement on a free press. You just can't do that. This is elementary legal things. This is elementary journalistic rights. These aren't, these are, this was case law before I was born. This isn't something that just sprung out and was born yesterday, you know. There's been dozens of lawyers, decades of time, commitment, ink, dedicated to this issue in the case law. So it was just kind of shocking to me that we had to litigate uh, this issue when it's been, you know, well-founded and well-established case law for... This is as as
0: the, This is always the challenge, though. I mean, this is, you know, in, in, a, in a much milder, obviously, set of circumstances, this is what I've experienced a little bit as well, which is there are laws that speak to the first amendment there are state and federal statutes that speak to it but unless people are actually going to fight this from time to time and hopefully more often than not they're meaningless you know they're they're unenforceable or they're not going to be enforced by anybody other than you know individual journalists or media companies or private individuals who who look at the statutes Um, and either in a defensive or in a assertive fashion say okay let's let's hold people accountable to the First Amendment
1: you have to fight for your rights your rights may be given but they're not just granted without uh, blood sweat and tears and that's really what I learned in this particular case like they're willing to challenge they're willing you know the, the the line in the sand isn't really a real line and you know people on the other side of the law are always trying to move that line and uh, and take away certain you know inalienable rights that we uh, feel are just you know here and, and sometimes we take them for granted and you know, I'll never take for granted my first amendment right to, to publish given how it was vociferously challenged in in two prior restraint cases so.
0: and tell me then what is the latest or. Wh- Obviously, while you were, you know, during the little legal battle, my impression from just our talking and my reading about the case was this was also really in the most challenging physical times you were experiencing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I remember the day that I testified in the prior restraint case uh, at the hearing. I had to actually, I was getting a a, a magnesium infusion because my magnesium levels were very low from the chemotherapy and uh, I was at uh, Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia and they were you know pumping me full of uh, units of magnesium and I actually had to cut short one of my magnesium infusions in order to make the uh, make the hearing in order to testify and it was one of those cases where it was I, I didn't have a choice it was testify because the, the judge had ordered that there needed to be some sort of fact finding hearing in order to establish whether I had lawfully obtained the, uh, the documents because he was really focusing on, on a case that if, the, if it was lawfully obtained, you know, they couldn't uh, suppress the publication of it. So in order to establish that, I had to testify and Millett really the only person that was willing to testify because the mother invoked her first amendment rights. Her her mother did testify and you know went along with the state story that I stole the documents and you know of course the, her daughter into giving them to me. But uh, I testified. I cut the magnesium infusion short when I testified and uh, it was a very combative exchange between me and the attorney, uh, Deputy Attorney General Aaron O'Leary. And uh, you know she was trying to grill me and get me to say something. And, put me in a pigeonhole that was favorable to her case, and I, I, you know, I I fought back, and, uh, uh, you know, a couple of times I even got, uh, you know, uh, scolded or chastised by the judge for some of my retorts, were we're kind of sardonic, but, you know, that's that's who I am, that's who I'll always be, always fight for my rights, and I wasn't going to be bullied into anything else, and... uh, it, it played out over the five months, and my cancer battle played out over much longer, over like a year and a half. And uh, it, it's, it's an amazing story when you really look at it in retrospect because it, it's a miracle that the doctors were able to cure me. And I have to give credit to my, my doctors, Dr. David Vaughn and uh, Dr. Stodemeyer at the UPenn Hospital. It's <laughs> you really look at it, you know, I went from the RWJ telling me you have one to two years to live to going to Jefferson and having a, a 50% chance of survival and, uh, and I had a had another uh, doctor there uh, another doctor at Jefferson okay. Dr. Kelly and uh, he, he was he really was the one who started the the, the road to recovery right he I ran through four rounds of chemotherapy at uh, at Jefferson Hospital, and it killed a lot of the cancer. But uh, he had to refer me. Dr. Kelly had to refer me to the doctors at, at UPenn Hospital, and I had to go through five more rounds of chemotherapy, high-dose chemotherapy, the most volatile, vicious um, uh, type of chemotherapy anyone can undergo, and it involved five rounds of that, and they would. Uh, infuse me with my own stem cells to help me recover because the, the, the high dose chemotherapy would just kill all your all your blood cells, and in order to recover, uh, they'd have to pump you full your own stem cells. So it was it was a, a long long process, and it culminated in a in a surgery at uh, Sloan Kettering RPLND surgery where they had to remove some what ended up being very large football-sized benign tumors from my abdomen, and they essentially <laughs> cut me down the middle and removed those, biopsy them, and um, it was it's kind of interesting that we have this conversation today because I was looking back at some of my Facebook memories, and uh, at this point last year, I was at Sloan Kettering uh, recovering from that RPLND surgery, and my doctor there had just informed me on this very day that my tumor markers had completely normalized. Uh, so it is kind of a an interesting parallel that uh, we're talking here today on the exact same day a year ago that uh, you know I would consider an anniversary of sorts.
0: That, uh, was, yeah was that day a year ago was that basically when you were given a diagnosis that you were cured or that your cancer was fully in remission? That's
1: what it came across to me as, right? Because there were, there were, it was always good news, remarkably, every single time. And really, at that point, the, the surgery was the last step. And to kind of get in real quick into the ABCs of the disease is the, the, the tumor markers. There, there's two tumor markers for testicular can, cancer. One of them is an alpha-feta protein. And uh, another one is a hormone that uh, pregnant women emit when they're, uh, when they're with a child. And those markers are elevated if you have testicular cancer. And we had gotten a point, to a point in the chemotherapy where uh, my numbers at one point were in thousands, I mean, maybe even tens of thousands. They're really, really high, because there's med all over. And uh, uh, the chemotherapy, pretty, they zapped me and got my numbers into the teens in single digits. But I think I remember still being pre-surgery because I had the tumors in it at, at that point, the, the benign tumors, with benign masses. I still remember being, my numbers were hovering around 11 and eight respectively. And I remember the doctors explaining to me that uh, even though they thought those tumors were benign, they would still emit a protein that would elevate my tumor markers. So they had explained to me that they believed that my numbers would completely normalize after those tumors were removed, even if they weren't. They were biopsied and they turned out to be cancers. So that's what today represents to me. It was exactly what you're talking about. The clearest cut sign after a year and a half struggle that I was finally in remission, because I had those masses hanging over my head, and they were so large that they were pressing on. Uh, every major organ in my body including my aorta and so they removed those my numbers normalized and today was really the culmination a year ago of a, a year and a half journey where there were days weeks on end that I thought woke up feeling, thinking believing that I was going to die and a year ago today that atlas-like burden was taken off my shoulders and today uh, I'm still in remission. I have to go every three months to get regular scans and checkups and you know we had a a, a little even a little bit of a hiccup right every time you go in you're worried about your scans and it it's not a major hiccup it's not a recurrence of cancer but on my last scan there was uh, a little very slight uh, they call it a teratoma it's essentially like this weird usually benign growth near uh, my uh, my neck area uh, and um, my doctor informed me that because of my history he's it's not a recurrence of germ cell cancer uh, it, it's not uh, thyroid cancer it's nothing like that but it's a very small cystic looking mass, maybe two, two millimeters, two centimeters, something like that. Because of my history, they have to remove that. So it's just, I liken it to like having a, 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 a luxury sports car and you have to maintain that sports car. And a year and a half ago, my transmission was blown. Uh, I was you know, down and out. The car was borderline, not salvageable. And my doctors, through sheer grit and will and knowledge, rehabilitated me, the sports luxury car, to get back on the road and plowing along. And now what we're doing is day-to-day maintenance. We're adding little lubricants. We're we're changing the oil. We're getting under the hood more regularly to make sure that I stay cancer-free and live a long, cherished, Uh, dogged fighting obstinate life for all those fuckers out there who try to infringe upon the first amendment okay I'm still here I'm still a journalist and I am still going to expose a light on everyone who lives in the shadows and crevices of America
0: you're still here Mike Loxley is now being discussed as a potential replacement of DJ Durkin at Maryland. Chris Christie, who uh, oversaw the attorney general who um, tried to bar you from publishing the legally obtained document, is now being discussed as a potential attorney general for the United States to replace Jeff Sessions. Life starts anew for everyone, although I'd I, I take, take you over the other two.
1: You know what and, and there's still reporters getting their credentials yanked and kicked out of press conferences because Donald Trump doesn't like what they have to say. But uh, you know, we, we we have come a long way and we've come nowhere at the same time, right? We just it's like a giant circle. Uh, you, you know, you, you feel like you come a long way and you're just back to the place where you started before.
0: What do you circle do? of life, I guess. That's right, that's right. What do you want to do next, professionally speaking? What, what what's that? What do you hope to do professionally speaking? You're still at the Trenton. You're, you're still covering the courts. Is there is there are you, are you satisfied in the work that you're doing? Or you has has the experiences of the last, I guess, number of years, made you uh, want to do something in particular at some point?
1: It's 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 kind of interesting that you mentioned that because I think we started off this conversation talking about how would you write the lead of my life. And I can't even write the lead of my life, right? I sat down a long time ago and I tried to write an autobiography, Right? write my story. And I got pretty far into it, probably 50, 60, 70,000 words on everything that I experienced in the last year and a half, over the last five, six years and tried to kind of crystallize and condense it in a, you know, a readable, interesting way. And, uh, I, it's a project that I've shelved and I hope one day to come back to because I think I have some workable material there, but you know, I'm like any journalist, your own worst critic. And I read it sometimes and I just think it's muck, but that's one little passion project, project that I hope to revisit. And. Honestly, I'm at a pivot point in my professional life because uh, you know, I'm at the Trentonian and I have this perception and somewhat valid perception that I feel like I'm a marked man there uh, because of some of the, you know, endeavors that I've pursued um, with the prior restraint fight, costing them, you know, I think it ended up costing six figures for them to defend that. So, uh, i feel like a mark man in that sense and uh there have been other instances where uh, other people have tried to um curtail reporting or um take legal measures to uh, uh, you know sue the trentonian over some of uh mine and one of my ex-colleagues reporting and uh you know that's, that's another legal fight that Trentonian continues to endeavor, right? It's still playing itself out in, in, the, in the legal court system. And uh, we've so far been, you know, I wouldn't even use the word vindicated, but affirmed, right? Uh, the judge has twice thrown out uh, this complaint that was stemmed from uh, mine and my colleague David, ex-colleague David Foster's reporting over a, a, a cop who, a Trenton police officer who was accused of, uh, uh, sexual misconduct with a prostitute on the job, right The allegations were very serious that so he was taking prostitute to uh, the canine police headquarters in Trenton, New Jersey and having sex on the job and, and paying this woman for that. So we, we wrote that story and he ended up committing suicide. So <laughs> his widow has initiated a lawsuit against a Trentonian to try to address what she felt was uh, irresponsible reporting and what we contend is completely responsible reporting about a you know a public official as sad and tragic as his outcome was that was you know allegedly abusing his power as a police officer so i feel like a marked man in that sense that you know everywhere i turn the appearance in the company is that uh, isaac's costing us money legally right because of some of his reporting even though i was very tangentially involved in in that particular story, I think, the, you know, David kind of bore the burden on that story, and I kind of came in later in the day after doing some other reporting and, and rounded out, and even even to an extent humanized Mr. Leopardi, Edward Leopardi, in that story, even though he was accused of doing something that was, by all, by all accounts, on its face, atrocious, right, taking advantage, exploiting a young, vulnerable, down-on-her-luck woman who was, may or may not have been... Uh, sweeping, sweeping the city streets and uh, it's, it's, it's a sad tale all along but uh, I feel like a Mark man, and I wonder sometimes if uh, it might be time for me to hang it up in journalism and pursue something else but uh, I'm a journalist at heart and it's a very hard decision to make to leave it but I've kicked it around I've even taken the LSAT uh, you know to, to go to law school and uh, the only thing that kind of stopped me from just making that jump outright is that, you know, I didn't I didn't like my schooling else and uh, I, I want to take it again but in the meantime I'm I'm going to enjoy my journalistic endeavors for however much time I have left and you know if I do make that leap and go to law school I, you know, I think that's the only logical leap and I have the tools and I've been equipped with the tools through my journalistic pursuits to Hopefully be a successful lawyer. and uh, it's all that's the only really thing I could see myself doing because it uh, you're you're doing a lot of the same type of work. You're investigating, digging, calling through records, writing motions, in, in defense of something. and in, in that case, it's in defense of a client, a client's constitutional rights rather than you know the first amendment and and, and, and newspaper industries
0: constitutional rights. Well, I'll, I'll make you this pledge. If you uh, end up uh, materializing into a lawyer and I'm still doing this Lobo blog, I will happily accept your pro bono services to continue to file public record lawsuits against <laughs> the University of New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how's, well,
1: how's that for you, a deal? You signed, me up, you signed me up for something and <laughs> I, I gladly accept because uh, That is something that I am glad there are people out there like Bruce Rosen who do pro bono work for journalists who can't afford their legal acumen and expertise. The only reason I was able to prevail is a tribute to Bruce Rosen. And, you know, what's interesting is he's a former journalist. He's a former journalist in New Jersey who, you know, worked in the newspaper industry at the time that believed in, you know, upward mobility and helping their employees get ahead. His newspaper actually, you know, bore the burden of much of his uh, uh, legal education costs and, uh, you know, helped him get where he is today. And, uh, you know, I wish it was like that nowadays. But, uh, you know, I guess the golden era, in the era of journalism is as sunset
0: and uh, we are in a new dawn. We are in the new dawn. Well, my friend, you have uh, you've filled up uh, over two hours of very interesting and very honest discourse. So I, I appreciate it. This was a, a lovely time talking to you. I will continue to follow you, um, and we'll and we'll continue to stay in touch.
1: Great, Dan. I really appreciate it, and uh, you know I'm, I'm glad that uh, you've endeavored over the last you're going to have to do what you've done over there in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico and watchdogging the Lobos. Um, it's something that needed to be done. It's something that I feel like on some small insignificant level I attempted to do and was basically blackballed for doing. And you came in scooped up and you wear that mantle proudly and, and I'm glad that you have exposed the ugly underbelly of UNM athletics, and uh, I hope one day I, we can come back on this podcast and talk about, uh, you know, Paul Krebs being under criminal
0: indictment. <laughs> and and I'm I'm dealing with Frank Bercagliano. <laughs> you you oh, did well, it, you left it, me with exactly, the same. God God bless you. I mean, uh, you know, uh,
1: you, me and Frank kind of somewhat buried the hatch a little bit. He reached out to me and you know said, you know, I guess uh, life is bigger than our little squabbles and uh, it, you know, I'm, glad, I'm glad you did that I, you know we had our little issues at the time but uh, that, that's one thing I have learned like uh, life goes on and uh, that's why we're always here and we'll always be here to, to, to make sure the public has the information it needs to make informed decisions
0: alright Isaac well you uh, we're talking on a, on a Friday now you enjoy the rest of your Friday enjoy your weekend and we'll talk soon Take care, Dan. Have a good one. And so, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Isaac Avalucea. You can find an accompanying story to this podcast, which includes links and excerpts, at nmfishbowl.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send an email to editor at or you can exercise your First Amendment rights and engage me on Twitter at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The NM Fishbowl podcast is available for downloading on iTunes. If you head over there, please like and subscribe. Upcoming podcast guests include Joshua Hunt, author of a new book, The University of Nike, about the corporate overlord of Oregon athletics. And we'll have ESPN investigative reporter Paula Levine, who has been responsible for breaking much of the news that has scandalized Michigan State's athletic department. The song you are hearing in the background comes from the Freak Fandango Orchestra's Requiem for a Fish. As always, I thank you for lending me your ears, and until next time, I'm Daniel Libet.